So Money episode 1272, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. It's Friday, October 29th. Halloween is just a couple days away. So excited for Halloween this year. It was a little bit of a you know quiet event last year for obvious reasons. And I think that the monsters and the witches and the trick and treating is back. And living in Montclair, I was completely unprepared for the intensity of how neighbors decorate their front lawns. <laughs> I put out some pumpkins and some mums thinking I was all fall festive. I have to now apparently go to Target and buy out all of the witches and the ghouls and the graveyard decorations. There are people here that have like glow in the dark spider webs coming from their rooftops all the way to their grass. I don't know if I'm that kind of person. You know, this is, you're talking to the woman who whose parents got her, you know, the last remaining costume they could find at Caldor's like the day before, because it was probably on discount. And just I had to go as whatever was available. One year, funny enough, I was Richie Rich. I didn't even know who this person, this character was. <laughs> like that's literally all that was left. And I was Richie Rich. I think I was five years old. I didn't really have a lot of like trick-or-treating friends because my mother never allowed me to go trick-or-treating alone with friends until maybe I was 17 or 16. I got a lot of trick-or-treating done in college. I was making up for a lost time. I was that person. But growing up, like Persian mom does not let you like go out in the middle of the night or I mean, and now it gets dark, right? So seven o'clock, it is pitch black. So there was no way that I was going to be allowed to go with friends unchaperoned from door to door. Like what kind of a holiday is this, right? You literally like have a 10 year old knocking on a stranger's door. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I will be going with my children from door to door, obviously, and probably for the next 18 years. Uh, But all this to say that Halloween, while I love it, I think it's great that it's this energy too that's been missing for some time. We're finally able to kind of rally behind uh, a holiday. I think I have to tiptoe my way into the suburban way of doing things and all that money, right, spent on Halloween decorations. I feel like it's it's a lot of extra. Anyway, I hope everybody has a safe Halloween. Very excited for what's coming on Monday. Following Halloween, November 1st, uh, we're going to kick off on CNET Money, our two-week-long coverage of climate and money. This is something that I came up with uh, within the first month of arriving to uh, my new job. Uh, We were just spitballing ideas. And I, I just thought, gosh, you know, suddenly, all of a sudden, whether you're on the West Coast experiencing fires and droughts or here in New Jersey with your basement flooding after the hurricane or all over the country, right? There is some sort of climate disaster and it has ramifications, right? There's um, a real threat to climate change. And one of those threats is to our financial lives. How do we prepare for this phenomenon that doesn't seem to be slowing down? If anything, it's ramping up. And I know there's a lot of discussion, a lot of efforts to try to mitigate the risk. Uh, Right now, we have UN leaders in Glasgow, Scotland meeting to talk about climate change and how as nations, we can band together to commit to this very, very urgent and important mission to control climate change. 
and adapt, honestly, to climate change. A lot of this has to also be about adaptation. So anyway, at CNET, we've got tons of articles at the ready starting on Monday about what this is going to mean for our financial decisions. If you're looking to buy a home, if you're looking to prepare your retirement account, if you're looking to prepare your home for the next storm, for the next fill in the blank. How do you prepare? What are the investments that are worthwhile? And this is just scratching the surface. We think that climate is going to be an ongoing area of focus, whether you're a science reporter, a money reporter, a health reporter. uh, This is uh, the new world that we live in now. But stick with us there on CNET. And also the podcast is going to be dedicated to this all next week, talking about the issues at the intersection of climate and money. I have a guest on Monday who's going to be talking about her decision to leave San Francisco and move to Montana to the Rocky Mountains, largely because of weather-related events and climate change. We're going to be talking to a founder and CEO of a bank, of a neo bank that is promising to take our deposits and only invest them in sustainable projects. This is a trend that picked up, I think, in 2021. Uh, Right now, I can count about two or three of these types of digital-only banks that are trying to be a solution against this so-called dirty banking, this idea that the big banks of the world, they take our deposits and, you know, they use them to lend to projects. And a lot of those projects comprise of oil and gas projects, fossil fuel projects, et cetera. And that's a big way as a consumer to contribute to the better world that we want to see is where we bank really, really matters. So we have a guest on Wednesday to talk about how we can start thinking about where we save and how that can be an agent for change. And then on Friday, I'm answering your money questions. And our special guest is Georgia Lee Hussey, who's a certified financial planner who has been dedicating much of her career to sustainable investing and helps clients build sustainable portfolios. So she'll talk about how all of us can do this for ourselves. A reminder, the So Money Page a Day calendar is still available for pre-sale. Yes, I have a calendar. Uh, So Money is now a thing. It's a thing you can put on your desktop, you can take with you, you can put them in stockings. Someone said, actually, it's like getting farnoosh. 365 days a year. She was absolutely right. So this is a fun project that I did uh, and I'm going to have another one for the year 2023. I hope that it will sell and we can keep doing this for years to come. And if you'd like to get a hold of your 2022 calendar in advance, you can go to workman.com Look for the So Money page a day calendar and use the code So Money for twenty percent off. If you live internationally, I have some Canadian friends who've been who've been writing in saying I can't get the website to work. I know it's also available on Amazon. That's another option. You won't get the discount, but if you go to Workman.com and you look for So Money, you will um, see the page and. You'll get it within days, and there's no uh, there's no supply chain issue for this calendar. So that's the good news. Let's go to the iTunes review section and pick our reviewer of the week before we get to the mailbag. And this week, we're going to say thank you to Saypan Listens to You. On October 13th, left a review saying, this podcast, always something to learn. I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of years now. And although I cycle out many other podcasts, yours still remains one of my top five. I always get something new to learn or a different way of thinking about things. Thanks for all your hard work. All right, Saypan listens to you. Thank you for your review. You can email me, Farnoosh at SoMoneyPodcast.com. You can direct message me on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi and let me know you left this review and I will follow up with a link where you can pick a time for us to chat about whatever's on your money mind. 
Yeah. So I do this every week. If you want to leave a review for the show, know that you'll be throwing your name in the hat to be selected for a free 15-minute money session with me. We can talk about whatever you want. We can talk about work. We can talk about money, life, babies, all of it. I have lots of opinions to share. All right, now let's hit the mailbag and get to your money questions. First up is Stevie, who writes in on Instagram and says, thanks so much for your knowledge, Farnoosh. I've just started listening about a month ago and I'm catching up on all these amazing episodes. My question is on proper savings. I recently landed my dream job after I got all my certifications at work. I'm gonna get a decent salary bump of $22,000. I'm trying to buy a house in the next three to five years and my local agent discussed debt to income ratios. I have a few debts like recurring medical bills that I just can't eliminate. My car note and my student loans, however, can be paid down. My question is, should I use this pay raise to overpay my car payment and pay down or eliminate my student loans to make my debt to income ratio better? Or should I put all this new money into my fidelity fund to increase my down payment? All right, let's just take a step back here. Thanks for your question, Stevie. Debt to income ratio, very important. Glad that your agent brought this up now because this is gonna show up when you go to apply for a mortgage. Lenders will ask you for, of course, all your financial information when you're applying for a mortgage. They're gonna wanna see tax returns. They're gonna wanna see what you have in savings. They're gonna know how much you make every week, every month, and they're gonna start to run the numbers. And one of those numbers is debt to income ratio, DTIR. As a general guideline, and I know this because I've been through it several times myself, most recently last year, banks, the big banks, they will use about 43% as the highest amount uh, for a DTI ratio, debt to income ratio. If you're above that, it puts you in the danger zone and they may not give you the mortgage. Now, what goes into the debt to income? How do you do this ratio math? You take all of your debts, including this future mortgage payment, on a monthly basis, and you divide it by your gross income on a monthly basis. So if the mortgage plus your car loan plus your student loans and your medical bills, let's say all of that remains the same, and then you tack on this mortgage too, divided by your gross income, what is that ratio? Is it 43% or more? If it is, then yes, I would take the next few years to knock down those debts. I would try to get that down to closer to 30%. But also keep in mind that that mortgage, let's say it's a $2,000 a month mortgage, and let's say you're making you know, $5,000 a month. That mortgage is now 40% of your income. That's too high. Banks like to see the debt to income, the mortgage to income as no more than 28%. 28%. And, and then we talk about that too on the show, right? We always say it's important to keep your housing costs to no more than 30%. That's the mortgage plus things like insurance and taxes. And, and so these are important numbers to just have in the back of your mind because you don't want to get to a place where you found the dream home, you're ready to apply, you think you have enough cash in the bank, but you also have debt and the bank is just not even going to move the, move the conversation further because they are looking immediately at these ratios. Now, your question is whether to start chipping away at this debt or saving. So assuming that you are in a little bit of the, the risk zone where you do have more than 43% in debt versus uh, income, and that includes the future mortgage, as far as which debts to pay off first, I would begin by tackling the ones more aggressively, the ones that will help your credit score benefit the most. And that would not be the medical bills. 
The medical bills do not get reported to the credit reporting agencies until you're like so past due, so delinquent that they have to hire a collection agent and they come after you and that may get reported at some point to the credit reporting agencies. And then then they'll start taking a hit on your credit score. Instead, your car note, your student loans, those are actual debts that do get reported to the credit reporting agencies. And your credit scores are going to be really important. Another very important aspect of your financial profile when you apply for a loan. So I would say that if if you can pay down your debts with your income, not this state, not this $22,000 pay bump, if you can park that $22,000, let's say in a high yield savings account uh, and use that as part of your down payment for the future home. And then with your, let's say old salary, If you know that in five years, you're going to be able to knock down your debt to income just by virtue of paying your bills on time every month and not putting any extra towards them, then that's great. You can bring down that debt to income ratio without any extra effort. And while parking that $22,000 in a safe place where you're not going to touch it and it'll be there for you when it comes time to make a home purchase. But bottom line here is know these specific ratios and what banks are going to be looking for. 43%, highest debt to income ratio a a borrower can have. That's including the mortgage. Ideally, you want to get that down to about 35%, 36%. And then remember that your mortgage to income ratio should not be more than 28%. Next up is our friend Melissa, who says, uh, my husband and I currently have a fully funded emergency fund. My question is, I've always heard that you should have your deductibles in cash in your emergency fund. For example, your health insurance deductible, your car insurance, home insurance deductibles. Would these deductibles be in addition to the usual six-month emergency fund or within it? So, hey, Melissa, I think you can have these as part of the six-month emergency fund. The deductibles come into play after you've made a claim, right? So it's kind of an emergency. Like if you have a claim because you got into a fender bender and you're claiming with your car insurance and then you have to pay a deductible, well, that's an unexpected expense, right? So that can go into this rainy day emergency pot, Same with home insurance. So yeah, I'm with you. I think having all of this, all these deductibles, uh, because again, they're there for more or less unexpected occurrences in your life, financial occurrences. I would say that that can count towards the quote unquote emergency fund or rainy day fund. No need to additionally save for these unexpected future expenses. Let that be part of how you use your emergency fund. I think those those are rainy days, you know? Next up is Nicole, who has a question about backdoor Roth IRAs. And I know this is going to help a lot of people out because I get this question. I see this question a lot uh, around the internet and coming through my pipelines. uh, And I kind of ignore them because a lot of times you can look for these. You can just Google this. It's not something that I'm going to add much value to, but let's just do it. I think it's okay once in a while to define what backdoor Roth IRAs are and whether they're advantageous. So her question specifically is this. She got into a discussion uh, with about whether a backdoor Roth IRA is worth it. She's reading some information saying that when you do the calculations, putting the money that would have gone to the backdoor Roth uh, instead into a taxable account um, is better. It's a better bet on an after-tax basis. And you know what, Nicole, I must agree with this, but let's take a big step back and just explain what a backdoor Roth IRA is for everybody who's like, what, what? So a backdoor Roth IRA is a way for people that have 
higher incomes to override the Roth's income limits. So we know that the Roth IRA has income limits. You cannot contribute to the Roth IRA if you make more than a certain amount of money. In 2021, uh, the government allows only those folks with modified adjusted gross incomes below $208,000 if you're a married couple filing jointly or $140,000 if you're a single person to contribute to a Roth IRA. So if you're making more than that, congratulations, uh, but then you won't be able to directly invest in a Roth IRA any longer. But there is a sort of back way in, a back door in. It's called the backdoor Roth IRA. And the trickiest part about all of this is that it's a lot of paper pushing. It's a lot of filling out forms. Um, it's multi-steps. And so working with a financial advisor or somebody at a brokerage to help you do this, I would 100% recommend that to just have somebody who does this like in their sleep to help make sure that nothing falls through the cracks. Because you know you can do it on your own if you want, uh, but I do think that this is, it would be money well invested to hire somebody to help you with this. Now, how does the backdoor Roth IRA work in summary? So essentially you put money in a traditional IRA account first. That does not have any income limits, right? That's the other kind of IRA. Then you convert it to a Roth IRA. And this is where your IRA administrator can be helpful with the instructions, the paperwork, your certified financial planner can help you with this as well. Then you pay the taxes. And again, this is where working with somebody can help because they can tell you exactly what that bill is when it comes time to file your tax return. Now, whether to do this versus just putting money in a, a brokerage account that you can access at any point, you don't have to wait to retirement to take out your gains, really depends on what your investing goals are right? Some people like to have a Roth IRA because it provides a lot of flexibility. It allows you to save for retirement in a very tax-friendly way. Uh, and also, if you wanted to take out those contributions at any time to pay for unexpected expenses or even expected expenses like college for your kids, it is allowed penalty-free. And the other thing is that Roth IRAs have limits, right? In terms of how much you can contribute. In 2021, you can contribute $6,000 maximum to a Roth IRA, 7,000 if you're 50 years old or older. And if you're a high earner, you know, if you're making $200,000, $300,000 a year, saving just $6,000 a year towards retirement ain't gonna cut it. You know, you need to be looking at saving probably closer to twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000, at least that 10%, right? To get to a place where you're gonna have quote unquote enough for retirement. So not a great way to build a huge nest egg, but you can do both. Why not do the backdoor Roth IRA and open up the brokerage account? You know me, I like to mix it up. I like to do it all. The Roth IRA has its advantages, its tax advantages. And then of course, the brokerage account has its advantages. You can make your money in and out all of the time. You're taxed on that money. You're taxed on those gains, but only at the capital gains tax rate, which is about 15%, depending on where you are on the income spectrum. It's not considered income tax, like some of us are paying 30, 40% income tax, right? So it's a smaller tax bite than earnings from a traditional IRA. All right, next up is Liz, our final question here. She says, I really loved your episode a month ago with Nate and Kaylee Klemp, authors of The 80-80 Marriage. I have been with my partner for six years, and there was a lot of really great advice, and the podcast got me thinking. 
You know, our finances are not really mixed, but we do live together. We have two dogs together and we recently bought a used car together. We have a spreadsheet to keep track of who spent money on what and how much the other person owes. But my income is less than half of his. So I just end up owing a lot. He says it's not a problem because when we decide to buy a house, we'll be using money my grandmother left me for a down payment, but I feel like this isn't working anymore. So my question is, at what point should we actually combine our finances and do you have any resources besides the book, 8080 Marriage, which I already bought, for how to go about doing that? All right, Liz, I agree with you. This is not sustainable. There's a lot of tracking, uh, you know, cell spreadsheets are great. I use them all the time. But I think ultimately, if you're not both emotionally on the same page about this and also financially not on the same page because you make significantly less, half of less than half of what he makes, uh, this can feel not fun, let's just say. You're always feeling, as you say, indebted to your partner and you're paying probably as a percentage of what you earn more than what your partner is contributing. I'm just guessing here because it seems like it's very easy for him to be making these payments, but you, it's a real struggle. There are a number of ways you can tackle this. By the way, my book, When She Makes More, does go into chapters one and two and three, maybe how to level the financial playing field with your partner. And I know that he makes more than you, but you can flip the genders and just take the advice and it applies to any relationship. But there are a number of ways that you can tackle this. And it's going to depend on, I would say, two things. One is your financial capacity, your ability to afford things together as a couple. And then the other is your emotional will. Money makes us emotional in different ways. And I think the 80-80 marriage is a great book for teaching some of the different ways to manage money in your relationship. If you have disparate incomes, you know, thinking about your contributions, your financial contributions, not just as monetary and spending related, but also how to contribute to help your savings accounts, to help your investment accounts and other mindful things that you can be doing to support your finances as a couple, initiating meetings, finding a financial advisor, finding ways to budget smarter, negotiating your bills on the behalf of both of you especially for the person earning less, these are some action steps that that person can take to feel like they're more on a level playing field. But you have to also understand what are the goals? What are our goals? You know, what does your partner value from a financial standpoint um, in terms of the sort of checklist that he has in mind? What are the things that he wants to accomplish? What are the things that he needs help with? Whether that's managing the budget, making sure the bills get paid on time, rebalancing the portfolio, et cetera, et cetera. But like figuring out what are the attention areas and how together you can support them. And these attention areas are not just oh, we have to pay for our dog walker or we have to pay for this used car. There's other things that take more mental work than sometimes money work. And how can you contribute to that? It's a huge contribution. Don't underestimate this. So I emphasize this out of the gate. I do think having a joint account that you both contribute to, now this is the key, an equal percentage of your income towards joint expenses. So this is not gonna look the same from a digits perspective. Like you're not gonna put in $100 and he puts in $100 because $100 for you is a lot tougher than $100 for your partner. So that's why I say a percentage. But before you even get to that percentage, because maybe it's not 50%, maybe it's more like 30% or 70%, before you understand what that percentage needs to be, you want to take another step back and think about what are our expenses every month that we both want to participate in, that we both want to share in, right? So rent, dog-related expenses, car-related expenses, 
And you know what? There might be some things that he's just going to cover because they're more important to him and he's got the money. We do that in our relationship too, in my marriage, FYI. You know, there are just some things that I pay for because I want to pay for them. And, you know, there's no resentment. It just is what it is. And we both enjoy these expenses, whether that's, you know, the organic food that I want to buy, clothing for the kids. Like, I'll just buy those things. And I don't have to get permission or feel like I my husband owes me. It's coming out of my bank account. It is what it is. But we do share in things like the mortgage. We share in car-related expenses. We both invest into our joint brokerage account. So we do feel very aligned and like we're sharing in this financial experience as a, as a couple. But having that joint account, knowing how much of a percentage you're going to contribute equally will depend on what you want to share in. And if like say that tally is $1,000 a month, month, you're not paying 500 and he's paying 500. That makes absolutely no sense. Okay. The only way that would make sense is if you were living as a couple below your means exclusively, which means that he who makes twice as much will have a very different lifestyle than he's accustomed to. And that's not fair to him because he makes more and he should be able to benefit from that. He should be able to enjoy that. So that's not really realistic, right? So I think the realistic thing is to take up equal percentage of your incomes, pull it into this joint account and use that to pay for your joint expenses. So that so if he makes $5,000 a month and you make $2,000 a month, let's just keep it easy. And your joint expenses are and your joint expenses are $1,500 a month. And that's almost all of your money whereas that's like a third of his money. So you need to come up with a more realistic, sustainable percentage that you're contributing to. So maybe you're contributing 25% of your incomes. So you're contributing $500 a month. That's 25% of what you make. And then he's contributing $1,250, which gets you to about $1,750, a little bit more than the $1,500 a month that you both need to cover your joint expenses. It's equal from a percentage standpoint, and it's with the understanding that you want to live within your joint means, not just his means, not just your means, but jointly. Some resources, um, I think 8080 Marriage, you've already got that. My book, When She Makes More. And then uh, I would say Erin Lowry has written a great book, the Broke Millennial series of books. And it's uh, her last one is about relationships and money. And it's not just couples, like in a romantic sense, but also how to talk about money within your relationship with a parent, with friends. Ramit Sethi also has a great podcast, the I Will Teach You To Be Rich podcast, where he exclusively talks to married couples about their money. And the drama is something. I mean, I mean, those, that actually might be a great place to start to listen to people that have maybe much bigger problems than you, to put things in perspective, but to also be an icebreaker so that you can have these bigger conversations. All right. Thanks so much for your questions. Such good questions this week. Thank you so much. Again, workman.com. Use the code SOMONEY to get 20% off the SOMONEY 2022 page a day calendar. Every single day, a good tip a resource, an anecdote, an inspirational anecdote. Went through the entire podcast and took out the best. A great way to start the year strong. Have a safe and happy weekend, everybody. I'll see you back here on Monday as our Cost of Climate Week series kicks off. I hope your weekend is so money. 